Mrs. Cole soon procured for me in the sale of a counterfeit maidenhead some consolation for the sort of widowhood I had been left in. She introduced me to Mr. Norbert, a gentleman originally of great fortune, which with a constitution naturally not the best, he had vastly impaired by his over-violent pursuit of the vices of the town, in the course of which, having worn out all the more common modes of debauchery, he had fallen into a taste of maiden hunting. Mrs. Cole observed that a character of this sort was ever a lawful prize, that the sin would be not to make the best of our market of him. After much negotiation, the articles of the treaty were fully agreed on, and the stipulated payments duly secured. Everything then being disposed and fixed for Mr. Norbert's reception, he was led into my bedchamber, where, still dressed, he sprung towards the bed. I got my head under the covers and defended them a good while before he could even get at my lips to kiss them. From thence he descended to my breasts, the feel of which I disputed tooth and nail, till, tired with my resistance, he hurried his clothes off in an instant and threw off the bed covers, which I suffered him to force from my hold, and I now lay as exposed as he could wish. My shift, then, he fairly tore open, finding I made too much use of it to barricade my breasts, as well as the more important avenue. I acted then all the niceties, apprehensions and terrors supposable for a girl perfectly innocent to feel at so great a novelty as a naked man in bed with her for the first time. He scarce even obtained a kiss but what he ravished. I put his hand away twenty times from my breasts, which he had satisfied himself by their firmness and consistency were hitherto unhandled goods. But growing impatient for the main point, he now threw himself upon me. I complained of his usage bitterly. I thought he would not have served a body so. I was ruined. I did not know what to do. I would get up, so I would. And at the same time, I kept my legs so fast locked that it was not for strength like his to force them open. In the meantime, his machine, which was one of those sizes that slip in and out without being minded, kept bearing against that part which the shutting of my thighs barred access to. But finding at length he could do no good by mere dint of bodily strength, he resorted to entreaties and arguments, to which I answered with a tone of shame and timidity that I was afraid he would kill me. Lord, I would not be served so. I was never so used in all my born days. I wondered he was not ashamed of himself, so I did. Pretending, however, to yield at length to the vehemence of his insistence, in action and words, I sparingly disclosed my thighs so that he could just touch the inlet with the tip of his instrument. But as he fatigued and toiled to get in, a twist of my body not only thwarted his admission, but shook him off me with such violence that he could not with all his might keep the saddle. Fired now beyond all bearance of delay, he remounted and begged of me to have patience, stroking and soothing me to it by all the tenderest endearments and protestations, but which, failing to be something softened and abating of the anger that I had shown at his hurting me so prodigiously, make a new trial. But I watched the directions and management of his point so well that no sooner was the orifice in the least open to it, but I gave such a timely jerk as seemed to proceed not from the evasion of his entry, but from the pain his efforts at it put me to. A circumstance, too, that I did not fail to accompany with proper gestures, sighs, and cries of complaint, 
of which that he had hurt me, he killed me, I should die, were the most frequent interjections. But now, after repeated attempts in which he had not made the least impression towards gaining his point, the pleasure rose so fast upon him that he could not check or delay it, and he made one fierce thrust and lodged it so far that I could feel the warm inspersion just within the exterior orifice. I had the cruelty not to let him finish there, but threw him out again, not without a most piercing, loud exclamation as if the pain had put me beyond all regard of being overheard, all the while crying and complaining of his prodigious vigor and the immensity of what I appeared to suffer. No other conception entered his head but that he had been at work upon an unopened mind. I was now restored again to my former state of a kept mistress and used punctually to wait on Mr. Norbert. If I may judge from my own experience, None are better paid or better treated during their reign than the mistresses of those who, enervated by nature, debaucheries or age, have the least employment for the sex. Sensible that a woman must be satisfied some way, they ply her with a thousand little tender attentions, presents, caresses and confidences, and exhaust their inventions in means and devices to make up for the capital deficiency. But with women of our turn especially, however well our hearts may be disposed, there is a controlling part, or queen seat in us, that governs itself by its own maxims of state, amongst which not one is stronger than never accept the will for the deed. I had now lived with Mr. Norbert near a quarter of a year, when once more the caprice of fortune dashed the cup from my lips. He fell into a debauch of drinking with some gentlemen, which threw him into a high fever and carried him off in four days' time. As no condition of life is more subject to revolutions than that of a woman of pleasure, I soon recovered my cheerfulness, and now beheld myself once more struck off the list of kept mistresses and returned into the bosom of the community from which I had been taken. Not long afterward... I met an old bachelor, turned sixty, but of a fresh, vigorous complexion, so that he scarce looked five and forty, having never racked his constitution by permitting his desires to overtax his ability. He it was who first taught me to be sensible that the pleasures of the mind were superior to those of the body, at the same time that they were so far from incompatible with each other that the one served to exalt and perfect the taste of the other. He loved me indeed, but loved me with dignity. With this gentleman, then, who took me home soon after our acquaintance commenced, I lived near eight months. After having generously trusted me with a genteel independent settlement, he appointed me by an authentic will his sole heiress and executrix, a disposition which he did not outlive two months, being taken from me by a violent cold. After paying him a tribute of unfeigned sorrow, which a little time changed into a most tender, grateful memory that I shall ever retain, I grew somewhat comforted by the prospect that now opened to me, if not of happiness, at least of affluence and independence. I saw myself then in the full bloom and pride of youth, for I was not yet nineteen, 
actually at the head of so large a fortune as it would have been the height of impudence in me to have raised my wishes much more my hopes to. But alas, how easily is the enjoyment of the greatest sweets in life poisoned by the regret of an absent one. My regret was a mighty and just one, since it had my only truly beloved Charles for its object. As soon as I was mistress of this unexpected fortune, I felt more than ever how dear he was to me from its insufficiency to make me happy, whilst he was not present to share it with me. After settling my affairs with much ease and security, I set out on a journey for Lancashire with a design purely to revisit my place of nativity. I had scarce got into an inn about twenty miles from London when such a storm of wind and rain sprang up as made me congratulate myself on having got under shelter before it began. Bethinking me of some directions to be given to the coachman, I sent for him, and not caring that his shoes should soil the very clean parlour, I stepped into the hall kitchen, where I slantingly observed two horsemen driven in by the weather. But heavens, who can express what I felt at the sound of a voice ever present to my heart that it now rebounded at? Pointing my eyes towards the person it came from, they confirmed its information in spite of so long an absence. I that instant shot into his arms, crying out as I threw mine round his neck, my life, my soul, my Charles, and without further power of speech, swooned away under the pressing agitations of joy and surprise. The first object that my eyes opened on was their supreme idol and my supreme wish, Charles on one knee, holding me fast by the hand and gazing on me with a transport of fondness. Our caresses, our questions, our answers, for some time observed no order, all crossing or interrupting one another in sweet confusion. In this interval, however, I picked out of the broken, often pleasingly interrupted account of himself that his ship had been wrecked on the Irish coast and he had lost the little he had brought with him from the South Seas. After the hour of repose came on, Charles and I were, without further ceremony, in quality of man and wife, shown up together to a very handsome apartment, the best in the inn, as soon as we were in the room together, left to ourselves, the sight of the bed started the remembrance of our first joys, and the thought of my being soon to share it with the dear possessor of my virgin heart moved me so strongly that it was well I leaned upon him, or I must have fainted again under the overpowering sweet alarm. No real virgin in view of the nuptial bed could give more bashful blushes to unblemished innocence than I did to a sense of guilt. And indeed I loved Charles too truly not to feel severely that I was undeserving of him. As I kept hesitating, Charles with a fond impatience took the pains to undress me. I was soon laid in bed and scarce languished an instant before my darling partner was undressed and got between the sheets with his arms clasped round me, giving and taking with gust inexpressible a kiss of welcome. 
But his action was now a necessity to desire so much on edge as ours. Charles, after a very short prelusive dalliance, lifting up my linen and his own, laid the broad treasures of his manly chest close to my bosom, both beating with the tenderest alarms. When now the sense of his glowing body in naked touch with mine took all power over my thoughts out of my own disposal and delivered up every faculty of the soul to the sensiblest of joys, that favorite piece of manhood now at its mightiest gave me so pleasing an agitation and worked so strongly on my soul that it sent all its sensitive spirits to that organ of bliss in me dedicated to its reception. There, concentering to a point like rays in a burning glass, they glowed, they burnt with the intensest heat. The springs of pleasure were in short wound up to such a pitch, I panted now with so exquisitely keen an appetite for the supreme enjoyment that I was sick with desire. I lay overwhelmed, absorbed, lost in an abyss of joy and dying of delight. With a ready submission, I resign up the soft gateway to the entrance of pleasure. I see, I feel the velvet tip. He enters me might and main. The sweetest, noblest of all sensations accompanies the insinuation all the way up, till it is at the end of its penetration, sending up through my eyes the sparks of the love fire that ran all over me and blazed in every vein and every pore of me. I had now totally taken in love's true arrow from the point up to the feather, in that part which clung gratefully in eager suction round it, whilst all its inwards embraced it tenderly, every fibre there gathering tight round it and straining ambitiously to come in for its share of the blissful touch. Then began the driving tumult on his side and the responsive heaves on mine, whilst our joys grew too great for utterance. And now... Now I felt to the heart of me the prodigious keen edge of love. Love, without it, the joy, great as it is, is still a vulgar one, whether in a king or a beggar. For it is undoubtedly love alone that refines, ennobles, and exalts it. I imagine such a transfusion of heart and spirit as that coalescing and making one body and soul with him I was he, and he, me. But all this pleasure tending like life from its first instant towards its own dissolution lived too fast not to bring on its delicious moment of mortality. Soon, however, to be alive again, for Charles' recovering spirit again gave me to feel that the true metal springs of his instrument of pleasure were, by love and perhaps a long vacation, wound up too high to be let down by a single explosion. Resuming then the action afresh, we played over again the same opera with the same delightful harmony and concert. But still there was no end of his vigor, this double discharge had so far from extinguished his desires that it had not even calmed them. 
He was proceeding then amazingly to push it to a third triumph, still without uncasing, when a tenderness natural to true love inspired me with self-denial enough to spare and not overstrain him, and accordingly, entreating him to give himself and me quarter, I obtained at length a short suspension of arms but not before he had exultingly satisfied me that he gave out standing. The remainder of the night, with what we borrowed upon the day, we employed with unwearied fervor in celebrating thus the festival of our re-meeting, and got up pretty late in the morning, gay, brisk, and alert, though rest had been a stranger to us. But the pleasures of love had been to us what the joy of victory is to an army, repose, refreshment, everything. When I revealed the state of my fortune to him, I begged him to accept it. After his flatly refusing the unconditional donation, he at length accepted by making his wife one who thought herself too much honored in being but his mistress. Thus at length I got snug into port where, looking back on the course of vice I had run, I could not help pitying those who, immersed in gross sensuality, are insensible to the charms of virtue, than which pleasure has not a greater friend, nor vice a greater enemy. Thus temperance makes men lords over those pleasures that intemperance enslaves them to. You laugh, perhaps, at this tailpiece of morality, you think it, no doubt, out of place, out of character. But give me leave to represent to you that such a supposition is even more injurious to virtue than to me, since it can have no foundation but in the falsest of fears that virtue's pleasures cannot stand in comparison with those of vice. You know Mr. C.O., you know his good sense, can you pronounce it wrong of him when, anxious for his son's morals, he led him by the hand through the most noted bawdy houses in town, where he took care he should be familiarized with all those scenes of debauchery so fit to nauseate a good taste? The experiment, you will cry, is dangerous. True, on a fool, but are fools worth so much attention? I shall see you soon, and in the meantime, think candidly of me. Mm -hmm.